begin. Welcome to Mass App. We are here bringing you conservative news policy and insights from the steps of Capitol Hill. I'm your host, Emily Vanderbush. And I'm Tommy Binion. So for today's show, uh, we have a big week ahead on tax reform. So we're going to have Heritage's Rachel Gresler here to break that down for us in a little bit. But uh, Tommy, let's just give you give us a little bit of a preview of what exactly is going on in the House and Senate on tax reform. Well, so, so the House is done. The right. House passed their bill. Uh, now that it's the Senate's turn, uh, the Senate bills come out of committee. Uh, it'll be on the floor later this week. Um, the It's 52 to 48 in the Senate. 52 Republicans, 48 Democrats. Um, Republicans can lose two votes. Um, and if they do lose two, Vice President Pence will be there to break the tie. This is one of those weeks with the razor-thin margin. Um, all eyes will be on the Senate. Uh you know there there are a handful of senators whose vote is still in play at the moment. The you know the whip count is not uh, set in concrete, as it were. But um, optimism abounds. Uh, the bill could change slightly, although you know not overwhelmingly in the next week. Um, so I think I think it'll be um, you know a, a lot of nerves, a lot of sitting on the edge of your mm-hmm. chair waiting. But ultimately, I'm optimistic. I think the Senate will pass this tax reform bill. I think the House will will uh, in turn pass its you know pass this bill so that the bills match up, and it'll go to the president's desk and he'll sign it. And as he's been saying, it will be a present to the American people. I'm starting to buy it. I think it will happen. Okay. Well, here's to hoping. Um, and so after that, they have a spending fight. Ooh. Do they ever? Now this is a CR, right? Well, so, okay, okay, let's so, break this down because yeah. this conversation came up over Thanksgiving dinner and I realized I was really confused about the process. Ah. So, um, federal spending is done on an annual basis, fiscal mm-hmm. year by fiscal year. The fiscal year starts October 1st. So, the idea is for Congress to pass uh, a new spending, new spending bills every year by September 30th. Um, instead, what happened this year was Nancy Pelosi and Chuck Schumer and President Trump made a deal at the beginning of September uh, to do a short-term continuing resolution until now, until mm-hmm. December the 8th. Um, December the 8th is right around the corner, uh, so Congress has a few options. They can do another short-term extension, although um, you know, they do a long one. I think the, the DOD, Defense Department, will be really upset because it, without the ability to reprogram funds, they really get hamstrung. And so CRs really hurt them in particular, mm-hmm. but uh, they could do a week or two CR, but then they're going to have to do an omnibus. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're going to have to, you know, they're going to have to do all of the spending bills at once. Um, the House, for their part, has passed all 12 bills. The Senate um, has not passed a single one, but they have drafted them. They have oh, released well. drafts as of last week <laughs> of all 12 appropriations bills. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens if. Um, when and if they do an omnibus, they're also going to have to um, adjust the Budget Control Act or mm-hmm. make some serious cuts on the domestic side. Um, and so there's there's a, a bipartisan deal in the works. I predict it'll happen sometime in December. Mm-hmm. Um, it will be a big showdown. The news will start talking about a shutdown um, and, and things of that nature. But uh, – Ultimately, I think Congress will pass um, an omnibus. I hope that it has some fiscal reforms attached to it. I hope it has some spending cuts attached to it. After all, um, Republicans are the party of fiscal conservatism, and and they're in power. So I'd hate to see uh, I'd hate to see anything less on this bill. Um, that that's next week's deadline. All right. Well, lots of deadlines coming up. 
Kind of shifting a little bit away from the Hill, uh, there's been some controversy stirred up over the CFPB succession. Oh, this is a great story. I love this story. This is an episode of The West Wing. Yeah. Uh, So uh, Richard Cordray, who was um, in charge of the CFPB, this is a... Uh, an agency created by Dodd Frank. Conservatives criticized that this uh, this agency really is an unconstitutional agency. It has powers that agencies are not meant to have. It has powers that belong exclusively to Congress. So, anyways, Dodd Frank creates this agency um, before retiring uh, or resigning or leaving office. Richard Cordray appointed his chief of staff to be acting director. He claims under Dodd Frank he has that authority. The president appointed. Mick Mulvaney, who's currently the director of OMB, uh, to fill the role as acting director. And the president has that authority under the Vacancies Act because Mick Mulvaney has previously been confirmed by the Senate. So it's pretty clear legal analysis that Mick Mulvaney has a right to this job. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, Leandra English, the, uh, the, the woman who Cordray appointed as acting director, has filed suit um, in federal district court. Um, here in D.C., claiming that she is the rightful acting director. So there are two people claiming to be acting director. Um, very interesting. Um, I saw on Twitter this morning that uh, Mick Mulvaney showed up to work with donuts, a whole shopping bag full of Dunkin' Donuts. So this is, um, he's you know, off to I, a good start. I, yeah, he's off to a good start. I then saw he circulated a memo to the staff saying mm-hmm. to, that the staff needs to disregard any instructions they get from Leander English um, in her or in her purported capacity as acting director. So this is a fun one to follow along. Um, We'll see what happens. It may not ultimately be settled until it gets to the Supreme Court. But, um, you know, certainly this is not a a crisis, but it's a really interesting power struggle. Yeah. Uh, Heritage legal experts will probably have some analysis up on, on that suit here shortly. So stay tuned on The Daily Signal for that. Now we're going to go ahead and go to our interview with Rachel Gresler. Uh, she is joining us from our Institute for Economic Freedom. Rachel is a research fellow in economics, budget, and entitlements, where she researches and analyzes taxes, social security, disability insurance, and pensions to promote economic growth. Uh, she most recently released a piece on The Daily Signal breaking down what tax reform would mean um, for different Americans. And she's here to, to break that down for us. Well, hi, Rachel. Welcome to Mass Abs. Great to have you. Thank you for having me. So we're in the middle of it. The, the president's Twitter feed this morning said this was a big week for tax cuts, and I think he's right. Uh, the, the Senate's going to act this week. Um, but I think uh, you're here to help us with a, a really important aspect of this, of this tax bill, which is um, the reaction that all of us have when we hear it. We try to figure out, OK, what does this mean for me? Mm-hmm. And so you took a look at uh, seven different taxpayers and, uh, and did their taxes for them. What did you find? On net, we found that most people, most individuals, small businesses will see a tax cut under both the House and the Senate plans, although it does differ a little bit and there are more tax cuts under the Senate plan. There are some individuals who are relatively high income, not necessarily millionaires, but you know, in the 200 to 500 range who will pay a little more in taxes. That's largely because of eliminating the state and local tax deduction and not lowering that top marginal tax rate. So if you live in one of these high high tax states, you might maybe that, that mm-hmm. that's where the category you said it, it's good for almost everybody, but there's a category of people it's not good for. So if you if you live in one of those high 
high-tax states, that's where you may be on the margins. If you're in a high-tax state and you have a pretty high income, you might be on the margin there. That's correct. But an overwhelming majority of Americans will see a significant tax cut under this plan, particularly the Senate's version. So that's that's really interesting. Republicans, when they started out, this project uh, in in the most simple way they could put it, what they wanted to do was uh, broaden the base, uh, you know, meaning more people paying taxes so that they could lower the rates. That's that's the simple way to say mm-hmm. that's a simple way to describe tax reform. Did they accomplish that? And is that why most people are, are getting a tax cut? They broaden the base, but more in terms of the amount of income that's taxed. So you see fewer deductions and exemptions in the tax code, which is a great thing. It makes it a lot simpler. And so what that does is it means people pay tax on a smaller percentage of their income because they're able to deduct. You take a larger standard deduction. So both of the bills have doubled the standard deduction that applies to individuals and families. It means they make more money tax-free, and it's also simpler for them to file their taxes. So so that was always going to be the case, right? They were always going to simplify. They were going to they were going to eliminate some mm-hmm. of these deductions that only a few people were benefiting from. You know, these deductions are um, they don't benefit everybody. They right. only benefit a few. So it stands to reason that on the flip side of it, there will be a few people who get their taxes raised, and and that's what we're talking about here. Mm-hmm. Um, so talk about you. You analyze the House bill and the Senate bill. Mm-hmm. Which is better, and for who? I know it's a hard question. I think the Senate bill is better almost across the board. Um, You have lower rates in both the House and Senate, but the Senate bill actually manages to slightly inch down that top marginal tax rate. That's really important for a pro-growth tax reform package. So much of the economic activity that occurs in the U.S. here occurs at that top marginal rate, and it really impacts the decisions that small businesses and wealthier individuals make, and those are decisions that create new jobs. It's not just these wealthy people sitting on money under their mattresses. They take that money that is in the form of a lower taxes, and they use it to create new jobs, to invest in things that make workers more productive and raise their incomes. And so on the Senate side, one positive is that you're at least getting the top rate down a little bit there. Um, the Senate also has a much larger child tax credit. They increase it from 1000 to $2,000, whereas the House would increase it from 1000 to 1600 The Senate is also much simpler on the small business side. It's not a complex set of rules and having different rates that apply to a different share of your income. It's just a straight up across the board. You get to deduct 17.4% of your income. That effectively reduces the top marginal rate from 39.6% to under 32%. If you're paying the 25% rate, you're going to be down below 20%. So this is a significant reduction in those rates, and it's simple. It's not necessarily like the House side where you have a bunch of rules to try and determine what your rate is. Yeah, I saw one of the uh, families you analyzed under the House bill. They got like a tax increase at five hundred or thousand mm-hmm. bucks, something nominal like that. But then on the Senate bill, they got a tax cut of like eighty grand. What was up with that? <laughs> yes, so you're looking at a higher income family there, um, and it's the rate is the way that the rate structure is. But the House side, you know, in addition to keeping that top marginal rate of thirty nine point six percent, they also have a bubble rate there. And so once you start making either a million dollars individual, a million point two for a married couple, there's actually a 46.5% tax rate that applies for a chunk of income, and then it goes back down. Um, there are also some differences in what's deducted and what's not. And then just as I said, the rate that applies, that 39.6% does not go down in the House side. 
So looking at some of the arguments against the tax, the tax reform packages, excuse me, one of the ones that I've seen is that it would give put more money in the pockets of more wealthy Americans. Mm-hmm. Kind of looking at the research that you've done, especially what, what ta- your paper that Tommy has referred to, how does your research kind of debunk that myth? Yes, that's really just not the case yeah. at all. Um, even if you look at the C- Joint Committee on Taxation, they've done some analysis to show how does this, how does the distribution look like. And the smallest percentage tax cuts are for the wealthiest in- income Americans. And even there where you do see a slight reduction in those taxes that they're paying, a lot of that is coming from small businesses hmm. that are paying the lower rates. On net, you won't see that significant of a tax cut for wealthier Americans because you're getting rid of deductions and you're not significantly reducing the rates, if at all. And so this is not a tax cut for the wealthy. This is a big tax cut for lower and middle income Americans and for small businesses and particularly corporations. And that's another aspect here that we just need to be more competitive in the U.S. and we need that top rate to not be the highest in the world as it is now. (laughs) You know, I, I hate paying taxes. I resent it. Um, it comes out of my paycheck. and It drives me crazy. I think I think most Americans feel that way. Um, but the work that you've done here is is really really important because you know a, a lot of us, if we open up our paycheck and and we look at what's withheld, we 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 see our taxes. But sometimes you just you get used to what your paycheck is, and uh, that you know the taxes are taken out. Maybe you get a return in April, and mm-hmm. uh, you know that's a good thing. Uh, and so a lot of us, uh, you know, our tax bill falls to the back of our mind, and exactly. How we're taxed and for what um, it isn't on the tip of our tongue all the time. So, making sure that Americans understand what this bill will mean for them is is really important. What's been the response so far to your piece? Um, I've seen feedback. You know, some people still say, "Well, I'm retired. I don't think this example will apply to me." Or this is this is a tax cut for the wealthy. And you can look at certain examples. There do show that yes. There are some tax reductions for individuals that are higher income, but I think um, what's more important is to look at those average individuals, somebody making $50,000 a year, and see that under both plans, they will have a significant amount more money left in their paychecks and in their pockets at the end of the day, and just thinking about what they can do with that. Also, a lot of Americans don't understand that tax code is so complicated, and so if we're talking a lot about lower tax rates, but people don't know necessarily what the rate is right now, their marginal tax rate that they're paying. Um, and so it really does taking, take looking at your current tax bill, you know, the form that you filed last year, and then seeing how is that going to change under this. But I think that most Americans can be safe to assume that they will see a significant tax cut here. Yeah. You know, tax reform is – I think everybody sort of knows this uh, subconsciously is that tax reform is really hard. Uh, and I, I have spent some time thinking about wh- why is it so hard. And um, a lot of these tax provisions are concentrated benefits and dispersed cost, right? A few mm-hmm. people benefit from it. Um, SALT qualifies. There's only you know people that live in high tax states benefit from it, but the yeah. rest of us pay for it. Um, I think all deductions qualify as um, concentrated benefits and dispersed cost. But those people who are getting the concentrated benefits mm-hmm. now – are the loudest voices opposed to this bill, um, and and they're trying to take it down. They're they're trying to make sure that the tax cuts that that the majority are in line mm-hmm. for don't actually take place, so that they can keep their benefits. It's just a shame that that's how it works out. Um, but but I think you know you're you're what the work that that is in this piece about 
how this affects individual people really shows that um, it should be the other way around. The majority of folks that are getting that are going to benefit under this bill uh, and the deductions that are going to be eliminated under this bill uh, are, are good for the majority of people. Um, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I think that's really important. There's two things that people need to be looking at there. And so it's not just, yes, I might be losing the significant deduction, whether it's the medical expenses in the House bill or the state and local tax deduction. But a lot of those people that are complaining about losing that benefit and they've been told that this will cost them potentially thousands of dollars more per year, they haven't actually looked and it it may not. They might still be getting a tax cut. So there's that component to it. But also going forward, it's not just about looking at your tax bill this year versus next year. It's about looking at your income over the next couple years, five years, a decade. And that's where the real benefits are. It's not just about the tax bills. It's about having a higher income, being more productive, having more opportunity going forward. And that's what this is. these bills are trying to address. Yeah, that's such a great point. You know, the, the bills weren't written to make 51 percent of people get, get a tax cut. The mm-hmm. bills were written. And it, by the way, I think it's a much higher number. I'm just saying yeah. <laughs> that they weren't written just to make sure that uh, just a skosh over the majority get a tax cut. They were written with economic growth in mind. Uh, which is good for us all. I saw a a chart earlier today that showed the number of jobs created in all 50 states is is ginormous. Um, The Heritage Foundation has has scored the bill uh, showing GDP growth of like Mm 2.6%, and the Tax Foundation has shown GDP growth of like 3.5%. This is all great news for the economy. It is. And, you know, over time then you can talk about reducing spending and bringing deficits down. And then we really have the whole package together that we're looking for. Well, let's get it done. We're going to find out this week what happens. Um, it's going to be one of those late night votes. This is how it is in reconciliation, right? <laughs> the, uh, there's a voterama beforehand in the Senate. So any senator can offer a germane amendment and that senator is going to get a vote on his or her amendment. Uh, and all those votes are, are stacked right in a row. And yeah, it could be two or three or four o'clock in the morning before this final vote takes place, but um, it's uh, it's a razor thin margin, uh, and so it should be really exciting. Um, I'm really looking forward to it, and I think your your work is having a big impact on the debate. Thank you. Thanks for coming to Mass App. Thanks for joining us. All right, and now one of our favorite segments, Ask the Expert with Jenny Maltabano. This week, she's got John York. Thanks, Tommy. We're here with John York. He's a research assistant in the B. Kenneth Simon Center for Principles and Politics here at Heritage. And you've also been doing a lot of work with Rachel Gresler on the topic of government reorganization. I have, yeah. It's very interesting, so I kind of want to dive right into that. What a lot of people might not realize is one of the first executive orders that President Trump made was to do comprehensive reorganization of the executive branch. So can you explain to us why is executive reorganization so key to draining the swamp? Sure, yeah. I think there's a couple of reasons. And uh, as you said, um, this was one of Trump's first executive orders that came out in March. And he ordered uh, department heads of the various agencies to go through the structure of the departments they had recently taken over and see what could be done to simplify the structure there. And I think that's really critical to his pledge to drain the swamp for a couple of reasons. One is um, it's just very wasteful. <laughs> so the GAO, uh, the Government Accountability Office, looked through um, the, the entirety of the executive bureaucracy and found some 300 examples of duplication, fragmentation, basically people doing the same job <laughs> across the federal government. And they found that if you were to address, if Congress was to address these 300-some areas of replication, um, 
uh, redundancy and fragmentation that could save tens of billions of dollars really whilst improving (laughs) services rather than getting rid of services. So that's the first thing. The second thing is we all know that regulations are a huge burden both to citizens and, and businesses. And I think one way of getting rid of the insane number of regulations that sometimes counteract each other or layer atop uh, each other without really improving safety uh, of products or, or, or transparency of, of, of goods and services um, is, is because you have many people at, at desks across the bureaucracy essentially doing the same thing, right. which in the case of regulators means writing regulations. So I, I think for those reasons, it's critical. Yeah. And on the topic of wastefulness, this is something that you just mentioned. Can you give us some examples of uh, wasteful actions in our bureaucracy and some of these agencies? Oh, my gosh. Well, <laughs> <laughs> so well, he, here's a, a, a very good example. Okay. So the, the um, USDA, the U.S. Department of, um, of Agriculture, and the Food and Drug Administration um, both have jurisdiction over uh, uh, food inspection. They both deal with food inspection. Mm-hmm. And the way they break down <laughs> their their various areas of responsibility is, is pretty inane. So the FDA inspects shelled eggs. The USDA inspects liquid frozen or dehydrated eggs. The FDA inspects um, all fish except for catfish, which is under the USDA. And closed-faced sandwiches and bagel dogs, USDA, open-faced sandwiches and corn dogs is the FDA. That's unbelievable. So, you have two agencies that are essentially doing much the same function right. when it comes to at least food inspection. is uh, is kind of crazy. And, in fact, it makes uh, the process of food inspection much worse because things can fall through the cracks. Some food products are inspected on, on different <laughs> schedules, et cetera, et cetera. So you both have something that's quite a bit more expensive mm-hmm. and also – a function is quite a bit worse. So you're buying uh, a clunker for Mercedes prices when it comes to our federal government. And that's just one example. Yeah, there's many. many it, it, as GAO identified, you know, 300. Wow. 300 more. So, yeah. So while the White House definitely has played a role in this and they will continue to play a role in this, I want to ask you what responsibility does Congress have to enact these changes and how has Congress dealt with this issue of reorganization in the past? Yeah, so Congress has an essential, essential role to play because um, – well, first, many departments, agencies, and offices are created by Congress in the first place. Mm-hmm. Even agencies and offices that are not created by Congress straight away, they're created by, let's say, the president or a secretary. Um, if they're mentioned anywhere in law, they have now some sort of legal life, mm-hmm. right? They can't be done away with, just like any other bill. Right. They can't be changed by fiat by the president, right? Mm-hmm. So anything that has statutory life which is most of the offices and agencies of the federal government, right? A bill will say this office will do will fulfill this provision of law. Mm-hmm. Th- then Congress has to correct that. So if you want to do a thoroughgoing, full um, from the the bottom up rethinking of our federal bureaucracy, which is wholly necessary, then Congress has to get involved. The way they've done the way Congress has addressed this in the past is um, by giving the president, and this was done prior to 1983 mm-hmm. for reasons we'll discuss in a second. Yes. Prior to 1983, regularly, the president would get uh, would get authority from Congress. Congress would reserve the right to veto, essentially legislatively mm-hmm. veto, an executive plan for reorganization once the president had completed his review and come up with a plan for how he wanted the executive bureaucracy to look. This was done routinely um, uh, throughout the 20th century. INS Vichada 
was a case that was decided in 1983 where the Supreme Court said, well, Congress can no longer use the, what's called the legislative veto, mm-hmm. right? They said, well, the founders specified how policy is to be made, and this is going the reverse, the river's flowing the reverse way right. from the president to Congress rather than the Congress to the president. So once uh, the legislative veto, which was the sole check Congress had on these executive reorganization plans, was no longer allowed. Congress was left with two choices. One, give the executive carte blanche authority to reorganize the bureaucracy however he chose. Or two, to, to come up with a plan themselves. And they, they haven't done either, <laughs> essentially. Nothing. So, right. Uh, little areas here and there, mm-hmm. for sure. But, but a thoroughgoing plan for reorganization, no, we haven't seen that. Okay. Yeah. So, taking that into account, what would you say is the best path forward for Congress to take? I know in your recent Daily Signal piece, you mentioned independent commission. Can you yeah. take us through this a bit more? Sure. Yeah. So, um, Congress gets in its own way a lot when it comes to reorganization. For, for one clear reason, mm-hmm. right? Every member of Congress, so they might look at the bureaucracy and identify the same sort of waste that you and I would, right? The USDA, FDA, right? No one's going to look at that. Democrat or Republican say, that that makes sense. That's a good open face and closed face sandwiches <laughs> should be inspected in different schedules. Like uh, they, everyone is going to maybe be able to agree on that across the aisle. But as it turns out, uh, members of Congress aren't just Democrats and Republicans. They also sit on committees and subcommittees, mm-hmm. right? And uh, giving up an agency or an office or, or cutting a department that's within their jurisdiction as a member of a committee is something that no Congress member is going to want to do, right? For the same reasons, it's very difficult for a member of Congress to admit that there's a bridge to nowhere, someone in their district. It's also very difficult for them to admit that there's an agency to nowhere yes. in, in the jurisdiction of their, of their committee. Right. So um, you have a not-in-my-backyard issue where, where everyone understands as a whole there's a problem, mm-hmm. but no one's willing to take the first step and gore their own ox, so to speak. So an independent commission would help solve that problem. Yeah, in a way it would, right? Because you would, instead of requiring Congress to either divest themselves mm-hmm. of jurisdiction or even more damningly or more difficultly in, in some cases, l- look at a colleague they work very closely with and, and challenge their authority, mm-hmm. uh, they're sort of... By they're pushing on those hard decisions to an independent commission, which, which uh, you know, sounds in a way like Congress is divesting themselves of their authority. In a way, they are. Another way is thinking of uh, you know Ulysses tying himself to the mast. <laughs> Was he divesting himself of of the the power of the captain? Yeah, he is in a way. But is he doing it for the best? Yeah, he is. So I think by creating an independent commission that that makes the that drafts the specifics of such a plan. Right. Right. I think I think it's much easier for Congress to sort of take to st- step back and sort of passively vote for for a bill that might challenge the jurisdiction of their friends and might uh, challenge their own jurisdiction in a sense. That's, that's much easier for them to do, right? Than, right. To, than aggressively going after. Uh, 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 their friends and colleagues. Now, on the flip side of things, with this new administration, have you seen any of these federal agencies take steps on their own towards reform? Yeah, sure. So um, Department of Interior, Zinke, has been quite good. Um, Tillerson, also quite good at state. Uh, But again, there's only so much uh, department head can do acting on their own, just because so many offices and departments and agencies are mentioned uh, uh, in in bills and statutes. Okay. So then again, it, it falls to Congress really right. to do the deep dive. Uh, there's a lot that can be done and is being done 
especially, like I said, especially in state and interior. And I suspect other departments are going to look at what uh, Zinke and Tillerson are doing and, and replicate it. Uh, but I think what's needed now <laughs> is you know, since 1983, we haven't really done the pruning and winnowing that's required. It's time to do that work. Right. It's time for Congress to get involved with that. Yeah. So last question for you, John, where do you see us at right now in this process? And when do you think we're going to start seeing major changes take place? Yeah. So June 30th, right? Uh, Trump, the Trump administration, the Office of Management and Budget got the recommendations back that they had asked for from the department heads uh, across the, the federal bureaucracy. They're going over those now, picking out the best the best elements of those various plans. Also looking at plans from the Heritage Foundation and other places, AEI, um, combining the best elements of those plans as well and hopefully pushing forward. Also, um, Congress is looking over uh, the idea of an independent commission. That's something Heritage has been mm-hmm. getting behind and other um, nonprofits as well. So hopefully something something like that should be in the offing soon. Okay, yeah. we'll have to stay tuned. John, thank you so much for coming on. You can read his latest op-ed on the Daily Signal, uh, our website. John, thank you so much. Thanks a lot for having me. Thanks for listening in. Remember to subscribe to Mass Ave on iTunes so you never miss what's happening on the Hill and around the world. Check us out on Facebook at Mass Ave Podcasts and remember to follow the Heritage Foundation to keep up with the latest conservative news, policy, and insight from the steps of Capitol Hill. See you all next week. Thank you.